You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the broadcast. This is Corbett Report Radio. You are tuned into uh, Republic Broadcasting, and I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we are continuing our Boiling Frogs Post to dot com week here on the broadcast. Of course, if you didn't catch last night's conversation with Andrew Gavin Marshall or Tuesday night's conversation with Peter B. Collins, I suggest you go and check them out. Two very interesting and fascinating guests. And tonight will be no exception to that standard that we've set. The bar has been raised pretty high, but I'm sure we'll be able to meet it tonight with our regular guest, Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. And once again, for people who haven't checked out StopImperialism.com, it is an excellent and valuable resource, uh, a frequent podcast. There's also articles and other information coming out there on a regular basis. And I'm pleased to announce that Eric Dreitzer is also now my fellow colleague at BoilingFrogsPost.com, where he's producing a weekly podcast called The Reality Principle. And episode two just came out earlier today. And it's, again, so hot off the press, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But I am very much looking forward to that. That, of course, again, available from BoilingFrogsPost.com. So let's bring him up on the air. Eric, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me back, James. Always a pleasure. Well, I'm excited to talk to you tonight because there is so much going on in the world, and I, I love to pick your brain on these subjects because I know you're you're up to date on all of these issues. But before we start getting into the hard-hitting geopolitics, let's just tell people a little bit about the reality principle. Sure. Well, uh, the reality principle is my new podcast. It's on the Boiling Frogs website, boilingfrogspost.com. Uh, I believe the shows are coming out every Thursday, so people can look forward to that. And um, it's basically uh, similar to my other show on Stop Imperialism in the sense that it focuses on news and commentary and analysis based on, the, generally speaking, the mainstream media, though sometimes alternative media as well. And um, I go into a close reading of the articles and a detailed analysis of the issues. And then the second portion of the program is devoted to an interview that is, you know, in some way related to what it is that we were talking about. For instance, the episode that came out today, I spent two segments talking about uh, oil, gas, pipelines, all of the politics of energy. And then the second half, I did an interview with a very interesting investigative journalist named Steve Horn, who has done a lot of um, exposing about the uh, the issue of fracking. So I figured those two kind of go hand in hand. So so there you go. There's an episode. So that's kind of what people can expect of the reality principle. A lot of me talking and then a lot of me having conversations. Well, absolutely excellent. I'm looking forward to that. Again, uh, on top of the work you're also doing at StopImperialism.com, I'm sure that's uh, a lot on your plate, but uh, you handle it so well, and it is so well put together. I Once again, my hat's off to you for that work. And I'm looking forward to this uh, particular topic this week, because that's one that I've, uh, I've touched on in the past, and uh, it is absolutely fascinating, but it is difficult to keep up with. If you basically, uh, if you blink, you, you miss what's happening in terms of these latest pipeline projects. And yeah, from and, what I and, saw, there was recently a, a, an explosion that happened on some Iranian pipeline that was coming out of Turkey. Yes, there's been uh, there's been another attack on Iranian oil and gas infrastructure, which is something that seemingly happens at least every month, once a month. And um, so, you know, and then of course this is against the backdrop of the Turkey, Syria, Iran, uh, you know, calculus that's going on in the region. So naturally, I think that 
it would be reasonable to see it in the in the form of some form of a provocation uh, or something that is designed to kind of push this crisis forward, push the conflict forward. Um, and again, I mean, this is this is just based on the pattern that we've seen over the course of at least the last five years, where we have a repeated attacks on Iranian oil infrastructure, and it's not just the infrastructure. I should say it's also the uh, the, the the financial system, the financial structure, which allows for the energy sector to exist. So uh, a lot going on with Iran, actually, uh, uh, on a number of fronts. Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll have time to get into some of that tonight. Lots of other things happening around the world as well. And if anyone out there would like to get in with your question or comment for Eric Dreitzer, the phone lines are open at 1-800-313-9443. Once again, that's 1-800-313-9443. But here we are at our first break. So let's take a short breather. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back, friends. This is Corbett Report Radio. Once again, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And if you're just tuning in tonight, we're talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com and also the host of a brand new podcast on BoilingFrogsPost.com called The Reality Principle. And episode two has just been released today on BoilingFrogsPost.com along with a nightly news and editorial. So I hope people will uh, check that out once again. Lots of information coming out from Boiling Frogs Post on a daily basis. And uh, just before we move into the geopolitics and all, all these crazy things that are happening in the world, perhaps uh, you can tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Boiling Frogs Post and your impression so far. Sure. Well, um, I mean, there's 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 no way around it, James. I mean, I initially got involved with Boiling Frogs because of a recommendation from you. Um, you know, I'd been you and I had been in contact. I think that you were recommended to my site, and then all of a sudden, you and I were corresponding. And then pretty soon, um, I get an email from Sabelle Edmonds who says that James Corbett, uh, some, one of her colleagues, had recommended my show to her, and that she liked it, and and then they wanted to interview me and. I mean, as they say, I suppose one thing led to another and she offered me an opportunity to make a show that would be exclusive for Boiling Frogs. And, you know, there were a couple of other things and I was traveling and, you know, there were some scheduling issues. So a couple of months went by and then here we are in the fall and uh, my show has premiered. So, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that there's much else I can add to that story. Well, uh, once again, obviously I wouldn't be recommending your work if I didn't uh, believe in it, and you've done such just incredible work on a consistent basis there at StopImperialism.com. So, again, for anyone who hasn't checked out the podcast, I hope you will subscribe and uh, and check it out because it's coming out on a regular basis, as well as The Reality Principle. And I guess we should make clear for the audience those are two separate podcasts. Yeah, and uh, it was a debate uh, for me personally because I was thinking about how am I going to structure this new show? I have so many other things that I'm trying to do all at once. Can I really do another show? And I came to realize that yes, yes, I can. And so, yes, uh, the reality principle is all original content. Uh, there is nothing that is really recycled from Stop Imperialism. I mean, there might be, I might touch on some of the same issues, but all new articles, brand new stuff, new interviews. So anyone who's a regular at Stop Imperialism who might be listening to this, please know that you are missing the stuff that comes out on Boiling Frogs. 
That's right. Well, as the uh, reigning champion of promising too much and uh, and basically biting off more than I can chew, I, I don't know. You you better back off. You might be giving me a run for the money. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's start moving into some of the issues you're covering right now because, as we say, there's so much going on uh, in the world that we we really have to uh, start focusing on some of this. Including, I definitely want to get your take on what's happening in Libya right now in Bonnie Walid. Sure. Well, uh, this was a story that I, I think really didn't even make it into the media until it was already an old story. That is to say that a siege had developed these, uh, well, the, the mainstream media likes to frame them as uh, government forces that have gone to Bani Walid and laid siege to the city to fight against these Gaddafi loyalists. But, of course, the reality is these are not what you would think of as typical government forces. These are militias. These are various extremists and militant elements and fighters that, you know, sort of kind of uh, identify with the central. Oh, Eric, the, the, did the you Oh, sorry, you, you, you cut out for a second there. Can you start that oh, again? Yeah, so uh, these these um, these forces that they call government forces are not government forces at all. These are, in fact, um, well, I mean, what can we call them? Extremists, uh, militias, you know, a collection of fighters, I guess we could say. And that is who's it? That is who's attacking Bani Walid. Now, the, the question is, what organizations? Uh, the Libya Shield group is one that keeps coming up, and this is one that people want to know. Libya Shield is an extremist organization that now calls itself a government-sanctioned militia. And that is really kind of the, the, the basic situation in Bani Walid. But there's another level to this of significance that I would point out. We were told, and the narrative has been constructed for us many times already, that there are no Gaddafi fighters anymore. There is no green resistance left. And then all of a sudden, uh, one year after the, you know, killing the murder, this brutal and savage murder of Gaddafi, all of a sudden we're told, oh, by the way, yeah, there is still a green resistance. This war is still going on. And, uh, you know, so just kind of accept that. And that was a really interesting moment. Now, I guess, what people want to take away from this whole episode is, number one, the media is trying to continue to construct a narrative that is not a legitimate narrative. This is not what is happening in Libya. There is still a war going on there. And um, so people want to be aware of that. And then, of course, also, this is a war against neoliberal capitalist exploitation. I don't know what else we want to call that. European powers, the United States, various other Western forces are coming into Libya taking the resources out of Libya, and those who are standing in opposition to that are the ones who are being crushed by the government forces and the militia. So there is a military conflict here, there's a, an economic conflict here, and then there's also a social and a cultural one because the attack on Libya was an attack on the people of Libya to try to eradicate any vestiges of uh, the green Libya that did exist. Now, I only saw this in passing, but maybe you can shine some more light on it. I, I have seen the headline that uh, that the Russians were attempting to send uh, aid of some sort to the, the fighters in Bani Walid, and, and that was being stopped at the UN Security Council level by the Americans. I didn't quite get the uh, the uh, details on that story. Did you hear any more about that? I, I also heard it in passing, and I think that that's another one of those, that's another one of those things that... Uh, I tend to shy away from a little bit because sometimes stories that come out tend to be wishful thinking. And until we get, you know, some kind of confirmation, I mean, a real confirmation of this, then I tend to not report it. But I did hear that as well. 
it's possible, but I think that for Russia, Libya, more than anything else, was a learning experience. I think that, number one, I think that Libya was the death knell for uh, Medvedev and any possibility that Medvedev would have had to continue uh, as president of Russia. I would say that Libya, among other issues, is one of the reasons why Putin came back for another term. I think that Putin had hoped that Medvedev would take the torch, Medvedev drop the ball, let Libya fall into the hands of the Western imperialists, and here you go back with Putin. And that's, of course, an oversimplification. Medvedev did some other things that were not terribly successful. But uh, the Russia-Libya angle, I think, is uh, instructive because really it tells us why Russia is doing what they're doing in Syria. Well, that that's right, and and just before we leave Libya, let's uh, let's clarify the point a little bit more because I think this once again brings to the surface the question of whether there is something really resembling a government in Libya right now that controls anything beyond uh, what's uh, what happens in Tripoli. I mean, to what extent can we say that there is any sort of unified government that's able to exert its uh, its influence on the country at the moment? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to what extent was the Vichy government in France a government? You know, I mean, when 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 a puppet government is installed by a foreign conquering power, can we really call them a government? I mean, I think that they could take on many of the uh, the 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 forms of a government. They can sort of parade themselves as a government, but a government has to have the consent of the people, at least to some degree, at least in, let me back away from that statement, in a modern state that's not Saudi Arabia or Qatar or, you know, some country like that that has a absolute ruler. But uh, most modern states have a government that is supposed to rule with the consent of the people. Well, frankly, the government in Libya never had the consent of the people. They tried to pass off what happened a few months ago as an election. I think that uh, any uh, informed observer knows that that was a mockery of an election, that half of the people who would have been taking part in that didn't even bother to take part in it because they knew that it was a sham. So the government wasn't really elected as a government. The government doesn't really control the military forces, and the government doesn't control the natural resources. So are they a government? Well, I I call it a quote-unquote government. So from this perspective, are we any closer to being able to definitively assert that Libya was was about oil, or is there another geopolitical cal- cal- calculus at play here? I think there's always multiple geopolitical uh, motivations. I don't think – see, oftentimes people fall into the trap of saying, well, that was a war for oil. Sure, I mean oil is always going to be a major part of any war that takes place in that part of the world or in any oil-producing part of the world, I should say. But uh, there was much more at play. There's the story and this is still kind of – you know, people are relegating this to the you know, quote-unquote conspiracy theory category, but I don't really think it's a conspiracy theory when it's validated by any number of sources that Gaddafi was in talks to move away from the dollar, to move away from the United States and Europe, and Gaddafi was a unifier in Africa. If you remember back to the early part of um, the 2000s, Gaddafi had already abandoned the Arab League. He had already abandoned the so-called Arab allies that he had had in favor of Africa. And uh, this was another reason why Gaddafi was a public enemy number one in Saudi Arabia and in Qatar was because he simply didn't recognize the uh, 
authority of those countries to dictate to him. So Gaddafi was dangerous for that reason as well. And then, of course, there is the story that the French wanted essentially to recolonize that part of Africa. I mean, that is essentially what happened in the United States. Well, as you and I know, nothing nothing happens militarily with NATO uh, unless the United States says so. Exactly right. Well, I, I always also like to go back to a speech that uh, that Gaddafi delivered to the Oxford Student Union. I can't remember if it was 2009 or 2010, in which he uh, talked about the growing American influence in Africa versus the growing Chinese influence in Africa. And in that speech, he actually flat out said that he believed that the Chinese were going to win that battle for the hearts and minds of uh, the people of Africa because they were more willing to work with governments uh, in the region rather than dictate to them. So uh, another reason why I'm sure he was unpopular with uh, with basic uh, Western uh, military sentiment. All right, we're going to uh, take another break, but uh, when we come back, we'll continue talking about news, geopolitics, and what's happening in the world with Eric Dreitzer. Once again, his website is stopimperialism.com, and his new podcast is also available at boilingfrogspost.com. So I hope you check it out. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Just give it everything you've got. Oh, it don't mean a thing. All right, friends, welcome back. Once again, this is Corbett Report Radio, and I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com, also the host of the brand new podcast, The Reality Principle, available through BoilingFrogsPost.com. And, uh, well, a busy man in a lot of respects. Not only is he doing all of that work, but he's also preparing for another very big political event that will be taking place in the near future there in New York City. And I am not referring to the two, two-horse dog and pony show that is the presidential election and the distraction that that is. I'm talking about something called the Against Austerity conference i'm actually the uh, the united front against austerity at againstausterity.org which is a public assembly that will be taking place this saturday october 27th 2012 from 12 to 6 p.m at inn world report offices at 56 walker street in new york city all of that information is available at againstausterity.org eric tell us a little bit about what this uh, assembly is going to be about Sure. Well, uh, first and foremost, I think that before I even get into the assembly itself, let's discuss why it's happening. Uh, look, I, I know that you have a lot of listeners internationally, and you know it's very easy to to sit outside and talk about what's happening in the United States, et cetera, politically and whatever. But when you're actually here, there's nothing that is more disheartening, more painful to watch than people around you getting getting amped up getting excited about a completely phony election a complete sham uh, a, a mockery of an election really i mean it's it, i find it i find it so interesting that uh that the united states uh was was lecturing to russia about the validity of their election lecturing to venezuela about their elections places where you have these uh hundred thousand monitors watching elections and everyone saying the elections were free and fair and open and then we talk about the election in the united states and it costs what two billion dollars to get elected in the u.s to have a campaign of any substance so uh with that in mind i ask myself so then what can people do i mean james you and i we don't necessarily see eye to eye on every single political issue or economic issue or anything like that but 
where we can come together is in our common recognition that this is a that this is a fake that this is a mockery and that there has to be some other way and um i've always sort of felt that the notion that uh substantive change is going to happen in any electoral process is completely um i mean unrealistic in the united states you're not going to have positive change during an election or by picking the lesser of two evils or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever the phrase is these days. So, uh, opposition to Romney, opposition to Obama, opposition to the established order, and most importantly, uh, opposition to the attack on, uh, middle class working people and the poor. Because no matter your political position, uh, it's an objective fact that, that, uh, the, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, and everything that, everything that, uh, the working people's struggles over the course of I don't know decades is being taken away. I mean things that are things that are so basic that we don't even think about them, like a minimum wage. That was something that was fought for. That's a legacy of labor struggle, etc. Well, these things are being taken away from us, and uh, I don't think that anybody could possibly hold out hope that Obama will do anything positive for them, even if it's just the window dressing. Look, if you're if you're willing to accept the scraps from the table, well, you know, I mean, I don't know what I don't know what kind of a meal you're planning on having, but it's not going to sustain you. So the um, the United Front Against Austerity was uh, sort of my idea, or me and a few other people, I should say, to be to be fair. And uh, the idea was to bring people together from many different groups: activists from the left, activists from the right, people who are kind of you know vacillating somewhere in the middle or existing outside of that. Coming together and finding what is that common ground that we all share, and how do we work together to intervene uh, where it is necessary? And things like opposition to war, hands off Syria, hands off Iran, uh, things like opposition to both parties. These are the these are the places where everyone who is kind of of that mindset is going to agree. Well, that's fine if they can all agree, but what's the venue? How do they come together? And the answer, hopefully, is going to be the united front against austerity. Well, I think you're right. These types of uh, assemblies can only work if they do include a large uh, degree of a spectrum of voices from, from all different parts of that, that, that spectrum and all parts off existing outside of that spectrum. So I think that it does uh, benefit people to, to engage in that type of dialogue rather than running away from it. So I hope that uh, people will at least check it out. Tell us about some of the speakers who are going to be appearing. Sure. Uh, well, Cindy Sheehan, noted peace activist and author, uh, uh, Professor Anthony, Anthony uh, Montiero, who's a, a professor at Temple University, professor of African-American studies, contributor to Black Agenda Report, uh, Dr. Webster Tarpley, World Crisis Radio, author, historian, uh, let me think, Don DeBar, community progressive radio founder, um, uh, Nanette Chavez, who's a... Uh, uh, the mother of a young man who was murdered by the NYPD. Um, I mean, there's there's any number of guests. I don't have the list in front of me, but we have probably, I don't know, 10, 12 people lined up to speak. But the, the main thrust of the event is not going to be speeches because I'm sure you've gone to many conferences. I've been to conferences. You come, you sit, you listen, you say, wow, I agree. That's wonderful. And then you go home and that's that's the end of it. Well, the idea for the United Front public assembly was that we would come together, we would hear these speeches, but then there will be debate. 
People can stand up. They can present their ideas in the form of proposals. We can argue about them. We can debate them and then come out of the conference with some kind of a, an agreement, some kind of a program for what it is that we want to work towards. And this is precisely what I was saying, that you don't have to agree with everything. You simply want to take part in the process. And in doing so, there's another thing that I just want to mention very quickly. That is that many people forget you are not alone. There are many people who think the way that you do, and you just got to get out there and you got to be active. On that note, let's take a short break. We'll be right back. All right, friends, welcome back to the program. Once again, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and tonight we're talking to our guest, Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com. Once again, the phone lines are wide open. If you'd like to get in on the conversation, 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. Or you can tweet your question or comment on air at Corbett Report, and I'll, I'll get to it on air. But uh, we have one caller already waiting on the line. We have Dave in San Francisco. So, Dave, thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, hi, uh, James and Eric. You know, I was um, I, in listening to you talking about uh, both China and the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't know if you all are old enough to remember the fall of both the the Soviet Union and China it had a lot to do with how the CIA was um, inducing people to smuggle. And uh, for example, uh, you know, in the sixties and seventies, uh, smuggling blue jeans and all sorts of Western goods into the Soviet Union really uh, kind of showed them up. It, it sort of spread ideas. You know, Western music got in there. Uh, all sorts of uh, Western ideas got in there, and basically, the entire culture just got sick of of uh, you know the whole rigmarole and. This, the you know the Berlin Wall, so to speak, fell. The the Iron Curtain fell because of a certain I, I won't say market forces, but that had a certain amount to do with it. And so today, to today to say that the uh, that China or Russia are communist is not really accurate. Uh, you know, if they've got uh, China, which really doesn't have unions. You know, they've got plenty of, of uh, sweatshops, but they don't have any unions. That's not really the sign of a, a, a communist operation, a, a communist country. Uh, the idea that the Soviet Union has got a vast amount of homelessness and, and uh, you know, poverty and all sorts of uh, organized crime is not really the sign of uh, a country in any sort of, of unity, and, you right. know, communism is supposed to be some form of unity. Right. No, I see what you're so, saying. Definitely they were uh, misapplied labels, I think, in a number of different respects, and you bring up the idea of uh, Levi's and Pepsi bringing down the Berlin Wall, which uh, which I, I have heard that, that idea floated around. Eric, what's your take on that? Well, uh, let me speak from my own personal experience. Uh, so my, my parents are immigrants from the Soviet Union. They, they left there in the, in the 70s, in the mid-70s to come to the United States. So uh, they were, I guess, part of a very, very, very small number of people who actually were able to leave uh, the Soviet Union. And in speaking to them about that, I mean, partially, I would agree with the caller and what he said. I mean, certainly blue jeans and, and, and music and things like that. But 
the notion that this was an entirely orchestrated CIA operation, I mean, it was much broader than that. I mean, let's not forget what Voice of America was. Voice of America was huge. I mean, my mother tells me stories of, you know, being under the covers and listening to Voice of America, and that's how she heard Beatles songs, and that's how she heard, you know, certain other things that were coming from the West. So the smuggling and the black marketeering and all of these things, these were all kind of, by that point, by especially by the 60s and 70s, these had been kind of integral parts of, of, of everyday life in the Soviet Union. So I think that we should keep in mind that, yes, the CIA was certainly involved in trying to subvert the Soviet Union, but there were a lot of other forces that happened over the course of a long period of time that began to fundamentally change the Soviet Union. And let's remember, too, the Soviet Union and communism, as it was in, in that country, collapsed not because of the United States per se, I mean, maybe partially, but it collapsed because of fundamental defects in the system, fundamental flaws that prevented it from modernizing itself, that prevented it from moving forward forward in the way that it should, progressing, in other words, and so it went the other way, deteriorated, and collapsed. Just before we move on, Eric, are you saying that Voice of America isn't CIA-affiliated? No, it certainly yeah. is CIA. It certainly is CIA affiliated. But what I'm suggesting is um, people need to not necessarily think of the the CIA as doing things necessarily totally secretly or in some kind of a cabal or you know in the shadows. Sometimes it's right out in front. Voice right. of America opens up. Very, yeah. very open, very uh, publicly understood, publicly accepted form of subversion. Right. Okay. Yeah. Just to wrap up, though, I I was going to say that. Um, Part of the the revitalization of of the blaming, you know, that they are still communist or they are still an enemy, is justifying the the military spending. Uh, one thing that came up in the debates the other day was whether or not we should go to a four percent of gross national product uh, as uh, a, a hedge against uh, the enemies of the world. Well, during the Cold War, uh, the United States was doing two percent. And for us to go to 4% when we don't have any enemies means that they have to come up with phony enemies in order to justify doubling at a time when we have virtually peace in the world. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of real hokum in, in this fear-mongering. And, uh, you know, that's uh, if we want to have a stable economy, uh, we're not going to want to spend it on things that get blown up. Uh, you know, we want to spend it on things that will last for centuries. No argument here. Eric, what's your take on that? I agree completely, and I would just add uh, that, uh, you know, whatever label is applied to, to a country, look, China is about as communist as the Federal Reserve is federal. So, you know, I mean, the, the idea the idea that uh, China is a communist co- I mean, China literally is probably more capitalist than the United States. Some ways, yeah. yeah. Hey, well, thanks. All right. Well, excellent. Thank you for the call. Okay, um, Eric, let's let's continue on. Let's talk about some of the other things that are happening right now. And of course, we raised the specter of Syria. Uh, that's always uh, boiling on the in the background here. So let's talk what about some of the latest and some of this uh, ceasefire plan, etc. That's swirling around right now. 
Sure. Well, this, this is absolutely, uh, essential for people to know. I mean, this is one of those, one of those moments in this last 19 months of this conflict that I think is a, is a very, very important moment. And of course, I say that not because I'm going to suggest that a ceasefire is going to work perfectly and everyone's going to be friends and be happy, but rather that it's really going to expose who is actually causing the problems inside of Syria. Because if we have a situation where both the Assad forces and the Free Syrian Army actually accept a ceasefire, well then, what's the other element? What's that other question mark in there that's not accepting it? That would be the foreign jihadis who have been imported into Syria, who have now said, I mean, the al-Nusra Front is one of the organizations, there's a number of them, that have already said publicly they will not accept a ceasefire. And what's their reasoning? Because Assad won't honor it. Well, Assad has already said he will honor it. The Free Syrian Army has. So, in fact, it is you who is obstructing the situation. And I'm sure you've noticed this as well, James. There's been a dramatic shift in the tenor of the discussion around Syria. Uh, if you've noticed in the last 10 days, maybe two weeks, the, uh, the, the rhetoric coming out of Turkey is completely different than it was a month ago. Uh, everything in Turkey now is about trying to disengage with this conflict, finding a way for Turkey to turn, you know, back in some other direction. And I think the, the answer is quite obvious because Erdogan, Davutoglu, and the ruling party understands that they will destroy themselves. Exactly right. It's beginning to backfire. And and that actually raises an interesting point on a number of fronts in speaking of shifts in the tenor of the conversation. There's another um, interesting, I hope it's a shift. I don't know. At this point, it's too early to say. But there is a little bit more uh, coming out, even in some mainstream sources, about some of the, the things that are being left out of the political debate right now. And of course, we always get a little bit of a taste of that, even in the mainstream during these political cycles. Uh, because at the very least, it makes for good uh, good headlines. But for example, Yahoo News, so that reliable and trustworthy source, has actually commented. They've, they've I think this is a, a news blog post, but still, it's up there on the front page of Yahoo News right now, um, talking about the recent confrontation by We Are Change of Robert Gibbs, of course, uh, White House uh, press secretary, over the uh, the uh, illegal drone strikes, but also the the illegal assassination, the kill list. And uh, and Yahoo News is covering this and talking about yes, it's a, it's a ridiculous uh, argument that Gibbs is making here, and he actually goes on to say that uh, if uh, basically he says something like sixteen-year-olds uh, uh, should find better fathers than Al Qaeda terrorists or some bizarre statement like that, as if people get to choose who their father is, and because they did, they can now be killed. At any rate, at the very least, this is actually being covered in the mainstream, which is something of a uh, a breakthrough. So uh, do you think there is some sort of attempt or or ability for for the uh, the alternative media to actually break through this, this wall of silence on some of these issues right now? Uh, well, that's the, okay. Those are two different questions. I think, uh, the last part of your question, the answer, the answer is to some degree. I think that, um, look, there's, there are so many things that the mainstream media would completely leave out of the narrative entirely if were it not for you, me, and the rest of the alternative media that is, you know, really covering a lot of stuff. But, um, the, the question about the drones, this is something that I've been thinking about recently quite a lot. Um, 
what we've seen is that uh, the drone, the question of drones, the topic surrounding drones is now on the table, meaning that it is now sanctioned by the powers that be that you can criticize Obama for the drone program. We see very mainstream journalists, you know, in the nation or the Guardian or, you know, very, you know, left of center mainstream media, I suppose we could call it, uh, criticizing Obama about drones, etc. But what we have to also ask ourselves is, what is left out of the Alaki narrative? Well, the obvious point that he's a CIA operative. I mean, that is the most important part of the story that's being completely left out. And the, I mean, of course, that he dined at the Pentagon and was best buddies with Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld and those guys. So, you know, that's the part of it. But uh, at a basic level, the drones, the kill list, all of this part of the Obama administration, this is okay. It's sanctioned because Obama can come back from that. He can say, well, I have to make tough decisions for national security. What is not on the table is Obama's unabashed warmongering on all fronts. If you attack Obama as a warmonger, as a murderer, well, then that is something different entirely. So certain things are okay for discussion, certain things are not. We've now seen that drones are okay, and that is a positive. But you are exactly right to bring up it. It's, it's what they're excluding from the conversation. And you're right, if they can frame it about the debate of whether or not we should be killing terrorists on a kill list without giving them due process of law, then, then, then it's already been framed in that, in that way that will guarantee that a large proportion of the public will probably be f- perfectly fine with that. Well, they're terrorists. They're out to get us. They're Al-Qaeda. Of course, uh, leaving out the, the problematic parts of that narrative that, that do point to the uh, complicity of the intelligence agencies. And on a similar way, of course, it's what they leave out of such things as uh, what's happening in Iran right now that uh, that can lead people into one conclusion or another. For example, of course, recently we've heard this ridiculous hype about a uh, an attack, a cyber attack on U.S. banks that seem to be originating from the Middle East. So it's probably Iran is basically the tenor of most of the reports that have come out about this. And, uh, and of course, that tends to leave out the, the pesky little uh, fact of Stuxnet and uh, the fact that the most uh, destructive uh, cyber weapon ever constructed, the most sophisticated at any rate, has uh, actually come from the U.S. and Israel. So uh, tell us a little bit more about some of this, uh, what's happening with Iran right now. Well, uh, just on the cyber question, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, the the notion that Iran is attacking the United States with a cyber weapon is completely laughable. Iran is really the only country in the world that is constantly under attack by cyber weapons. So, uh, you know, I mean, this is, I, I guess, I, I don't really know if I need to respond to that. It's totally laughable. The Israelis and the United States are completely um, full bore with the cyber war against the Iranians. This is now accepted as mainstream fact. The, the book came out. I I don't remember the name of the book. The title's not coming to mind, but that documented the assassination program that's being run by the Israelis against the Iranian scientists. And what it also kind of touches on is the notion that there are at least seven or eight different fronts in this covert war against Iran. I mean, the assassination of scientists, the uh, 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 sabotage on oil infrastructure, cyber war, uh, the sanctions, of course. I mean, the sanctions, which are completely destroying the country. And uh, let me just say also that uh, the idea that sanctions go after the regime is completely, uh, completely laughable. I don't know. I keep saying that word, but it really is laughable because sanctions always attack the people. How many people died in Iraq because of the sanctions? Upwards of one and a half million. 
That's the, that's the estimates that I'm hearing. In Iran, who knows how many will have to die? We're hearing reports that medicine is short, and because of the uh, free fall of the currency, they cannot buy things internationally. They have no way of settling international debts. Therefore, they can't even import anything. So this is, this is part of a uh, comprehensive campaign to go after the Iranians and to try to destroy them without having to actually put boots on the ground. And this is, I, I mean for lack of a better word, incredibly dangerous. How is this affecting Iran's diplomatic ties, especially with uh, countries like Egypt? Well, that that's an interesting um, that's an interesting relationship because, as we as we all know, I think that is um, excuse me, Iran and Egypt never really had relations over the last thirty years. Ever since Egypt made peace with the Israelis, Egypt and Iran have been completely uh, well. Each, you know, non grata for each other, persona non grata for each other. So what we're seeing now is that Morsi, the president of Egypt, is making overtures to Iran. And this began with him saying no to the United States and saying that he would attend the non-aligned movement summit. By attending that summit in the face of U.S. pressure, he was essentially sending the message that he is willing to deal with the Iranians. Now, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. They don't really have formal economic ties yet. Trade is in the millions, not even in the billions and between those two countries. So it's something that has to build. But this is a positive sign. I would also remind people that uh, Iran had upwards of uh, 65% of the world represented at the Non-Aligned Movement Summit. So the notion that Iran is isolated by the United States, this is completely uh, fraudulent. In fact, if anything, the United States, Israel and Western Europe are isolated by the rest of the world. Of course, the spin is out there that Morsi did attend the NAM, but he attended basically to uh, to chastise everyone on Syria, etc. So he was still towing the party line, even if he did attend. Yeah, and look, uh, to some degree, and the Muslim Brotherhood is never going to give you what you really want. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood is at least going back to their earliest days, a creation of the Western powers that was used as a weapon against Nasser and various other Arab nationalists. So uh, to think that the Muslim Brotherhood is going to win the presidency and all of a sudden, you know, Egypt is going to turn a new turn over a new leaf and become a completely different place. Well, not so fast, but there are positive signs. And remember this, when we're talking about geopolitics at this level, there is no friendship. There are no friends. There's merely arrangements of convenience, things that represent interests. And in this context, Egypt and Iran have mutual interests. And that mutual interest is going to hopefully foster economic engagement, which is the surest way to maintain peace. All right, excellent. Well, we're coming up against our final break, so let's take another breather. And when we come back, we will wrap things up with Eric Reitzer, StopImperialism.com, and we'll talk about some of the things that he might be working on next. So stay tuned right there. We'll be back after these short messages. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the 2010 Video Archive DVD. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. One day in Manhattan, clear as could be. All right, friends, welcome back to the final moments of Corbett Report Radio. Once again, you're tuned into Republic Broadcasting, and tonight we have been talking to Eric Dreitzer of StopImperialism.com and also, of course, the new Reality Principle podcast on BoilingFrogsPost.com. 
And once again, in case you missed it, he will be one of the speakers at and in attendance at the UFAA Public Assembly. That's the United Front Against Austerity. And that can be found at againstausterity.org. That will be this Saturday, October 27th, taking place from 12 noon until 6 p.m. in New York City. The date and the time and the location and all of those details available at againstausterity.org. And just as a reminder, there is an event that's taking place in solidarity with that event. For those who can't make it to New York, if you happen to be in Portland, Oregon, there's going to be an event taking place at the Hollywood Library in Portland uh, that is going to be taking place, I believe, from 10.15 in the morning, on 10.15 a.m. till 12.45 p.m., and the details of that are at realitytestevents.org, and that is in solidarity with what's happening at the UFAA. It's also going to be screening some of my material from the Last Word video series. All right, Eric, uh, just a couple of minutes here at the end. Let's talk about anything you might be working on after the conference. Sure. Uh, well, I'm, I'm always working on articles, trying to find interesting angles on things that are happening in the world. Right now, I'm doing some pretty serious investigation to uh, some important political shifts in Yemen, because uh, this is, of course, the site of what I would call the probably the hottest front of the proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the front for that proxy war is in Bahrain, it's in Yemen, and it's in other places as well. But Yemen is a very little understood country, and so I'm doing some investigation into that, and I'll have some material on that probably uh, available on StopImperialism.com next week. Uh, other than that, there's a project in the works right now that I'm going to be a part of uh, the creation of a new website. We don't have a name or anything yet, but details will be Following the website is designed to be a, a a news site, but kind of a one-stop shop. It's going to have my podcasts on there. It's going to have videos produced by a number of different people. Uh, um, and then, of course, news aggregation. James, you and I know that uh, if you're trying to follow if you're trying to follow news, I mean, you can't you couldn't possibly follow it if you have to go to a hundred different places. But if you can get it all in one place, I think that that's the way to do it. And so hopefully this new project will allow people to do that and can bring together analysts like myself. Uh, you know, James, for instance, Niall Bowie is uh, probably going to be involved with this as well. Tony Cardellucci has mentioned that he's wanted to be involved. So trying to bring together various analysts that are uh, presenting a unique viewpoint that you simply will not get other places. And let me just say, that's exactly what boiling frogs does the 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 most wonderful thing about boiling frogs is that uh, is the variety there i mean you can you can come and listen to me or peter b collins or james or whomever and get three totally different viewpoints from three very different people with uh very different ideas and it's wonderful and that's why i'm a regular uh listener and follower of boiling frogs and so proud to be a producer and a partner Absolutely, as am I. So once again, we are looking forward to all the work that you're doing there, everything that's coming out. I hope you do get a chance to take at least a bit of a breather after this conference in order to uh, to collect your breath a little. But there is no rest for the wicked and those fighting the wicked, I suppose. So we'll just have to continue soldiering on. So I'm looking forward to the details of that new website. And of course, when it comes out, you let me know and I'll let the audience know. Uh, Eric Gratzer, thank you so much again for your time tonight. Thank you, James. All right, friends, that's going to do it for this evening. And once again, tomorrow night, we're going to be talking to Sibel Edmonds herself, the founder and creator of BoilingFrogsPost.com. It's going to be a fascinating conversation, as always, so I hope you will be there for that. So until tomorrow night, 23 hours from now, uh, once again, thank you all for listening, and take care. Take care.